Food addiction exists on a continuum. Addiction is using when you don't want to be using anymore and you cannot stop. Relapse doesn't have to be an emergency. We know that it's not what we want to do. You still need to be able to care for yourself and get back on track as quickly as possible. If you're a 10, success is gonna be, you know, never breaking your bright lines. But if you're a six, then success might absolutely be resuming quickly when you deviate at, with minimal mental distress over it. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready? To take charge of your existence and biohack your life, this show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Are you ready? Let's do this. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Okay, friends, it is always so exciting when I have an interview with somebody that I've been following for so long, especially when it's books I was reading way before this podcast. It's just really a surreal moment. I love the work of Dr. Susan Pierce Thompson, and today's conversation I think will be so, so valuable to people. So many people talk about the role of sticking to a diet, maintaining a diet, but there's really not a lot of work on how to deal with relapses and falling off the wagon and getting back on, and that's what this is all about. We talk about so many topics, like is food addiction actually real, the fascinating go versus no-go pathway and what that means, how to have a reframe mindset? What is intuitive eating and should you do it? How should you feed your kids? Why society doesn't actually even like the concept of food addiction and so much more. I really think you guys will love this and I can't wait to hear what you guys think. The show notes for today's episode will be at melanieavalon.com slash resume. Those show notes will have a full transcript, so definitely check that out. There will be two episode giveaways for this episode. One will be in my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting Plus Real Foods Plus Life. Comment something you learned or something that resonated with you on the pinned post to enter to win something that I love. And then check out the Friday announcement post again, comment something there to enter to win something that I love. If you are enjoying the show, the ultimate best way to support it is if you could subscribe and or write a brief review in Apple Podcasts. It helps so much more than most people realize. So thank you so much in advance for that. I have a very exciting announcement, friends. I have officially launched a TikTok channel. I've been on Instagram for a while, but it is time for TikTok. And with the channel, I'm going to be posting daily, very high quality, awesome biohacking content, tips and tricks, things from my life. And I really want to bring the glam to biohacking because I feel like biohacking can be very male-centric or focused on a certain type of person. And I just want to break that stereotype and bring all the sparkles. So please join me there. My handle is Melanie Avalon Official. Please let me know what you'd like to see from me, what you think of the content. I do feel pretty shy about it. So please join me so that we can be friends and just go on the most epic biohacking adventure. Okay, friends, Spirulina update. It is still coming. I know it's been taking a while. It's just because I want to make the most ideal Spirulina tablets on the market. 
ones that are tested for purity and potency and to be free of all pesticides and just the highest quality. So we've got that spirulina source. It tastes awesome. The issue we're experiencing is that in order to make it into tablets, it requires another ingredient. If you're currently taking spirulina tablets and they say they are one ingredient, they are not one ingredient. There is something in there that is helping to keep that structure. So we're trying to figure out which route to go with this. It's really fun because I keep trying different samples. I think I know which one I like the most, but we'll see which one I end up picking. Either way, I really love the taste of our spirulina. It doesn't taste fishy or algae and I really experienced the benefits. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, you can get my other Avalon X supplements at avalonx.us. Friends, have you jumped on the serapeptase bandwagon yet? That's what I launched with. And to this day, it continues to be my most favorite supplement ever. It's a proteolytic enzyme created by the Japanese silkworm. When you take it in the fasted state, it actually breaks down non-living problematic proteins in your body. So it can help address an array of issues. Like I said, it will clear your sinuses, calm inflammation, it may help reduce cholesterol. Studies have shown it can break down amyloid plaque. It can help alleviate pain and so much more. I take it daily. It is one of the most important supplements in my arsenal. This is the new year. Start it off right. Get some serapeptase. You can get 10% off with the coupon code MELANIEAVALON, as well as a 20% off code when you text AVALONX to 877-861-8318. That's AVALONX to 877-861-8318. Those codes will also work with my fantastic partner, MD Logic Health. For that, go to melanieavalon.com slash mdlogic. And of course, all of my supplements I formulated to be the very best on the market. They're tested multiple times for heavy metals and mold. They're free of all common allergens as well as problematic fillers, which goes back to that whole spirulina formulation issue I was talking about. They come in glass bottles to help prevent leaching of plastics into ourselves and the environment. And we even use the minimal amount of stickiness required for the labels to help with our environmental impact. To get these fantastic products, go to avalonx.us and definitely get on my email list so that you don't miss the Spirulina launch special. For that, go to avalonx.us slash email list. Another resource for you guys if you struggle with food sensitivities like I do, you have got to get my app Food Sense Guide. It's a comprehensive catalog of over 300 foods for 11 potentially problematic compounds. These include things you may be reacting to, like gluten, lectins, FODMAPs, histamine, oxalates, sulfites, thiols, whether or not something is a nightshade, and so much more. It even includes autoimmune paleo AIP status. You can learn about the compounds, create your own list to share and print, and finally take charge of your food sensitivities. It is a top Apple app, often in the top 10 for the Apple food and drinks charts. And friends, get it now because I'm going to be updating it to a subscription basis soon. So you definitely want to get grandfathered in for life at one super low price. With the subscriptions, by the way, I'm going to be implementing some pretty cool features. So I need to do subscriptions to help support that. So like I said, get it now before we change to subscriptions. You can get it at melanieavalon.com slash foodsenseguide. And one more thing before we jump in. Did you know there are over a thousand compounds found in conventional skincare and makeup in the U.S.? 
that have been banned in Europe due to their toxicity. If you are using conventional skincare makeup, you are directly putting into your bloodstream toxic compounds, including obesogens, which can literally cause your body to store and gain weight. So if your diet's not working, you might want to think about what's happening with your skincare makeup, as well as carcinogens linked to cancer. I'm not making this up and just endocrine disruptors in general, which mess with our hormones. Thankfully, there's an easy solution to this. There's a company called Beauty Counter, and they were founded on a mission to change this. Every single ingredient is extensively tested to be safe for your skin, so you can truly feel good about what you put on, and their products really work. I am obsessed with their overnight resurfacing peel, their vitamin C serum, they have shampoo and conditioner, skincare lines for every skin type, and incredible makeup. It's so amazing that Tina Fey actually wore all beauty counter makeup when she hosted the Golden Globes. So yes, it is high definition camera ready. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code cleanforall20 to get 20% off site-wide. You can get the latest updates from me, specials, sales, samples, and so much more on my email list. That's at melanieavalon.com slash cleanbeauty. And you can join me in my Facebook group, Clean Beauty and Safe Skincare with Melanie Avalon. People share product reviews and their experiences, and I do a giveaway every single week in that group as well. And lastly, if you're thinking of making clean beauty and safe skincare a part of your future, like I have, I definitely recommend becoming a Band of Beauty member. It's sort of like the Amazon Prime for clean beauty. You get 10 percent back in product credit, free shipping on qualifying orders, and a welcome gift that is worth way more than the price of the year-long membership. It is totally completely worth it. And I'll put all this information in the show notes. An important announcement, friends. My EMF blocking products are coming. Make sure you don't miss the launch special. For that, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list. EMFs are actually classified by the IARC as a group 2B, possibly carcinogenic to humans. These are such a problem. We are exposed to them through our Wi-Fi, our cell phones, our AirPods, And they are linked to so many health issues, including anxiety, migraines, headaches, even fertility issues. This is such a problem. Thankfully, you can address your EMF exposure. I'm going to help with that with my Avalon X EMF blocking product line. So again, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list to check that out. All right, without further ado, please enjoy this wonderful conversation with Dr. Susan Pierce Thompson. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the show. I am so incredibly excited about the conversation that I am about to have. So here is the backstory on today's conversation. Quite a while ago, I was looking it up. This book came out in 2017, and I think I read it in probably 2018, but there is a book, very well-known book, called Bright Line Eating, The Science of Living Happy, Thin, and Free. It was a New York Times bestseller. I read it, like I said, around the time that it came out, and it really resonated with me because it spoke to a theme that personally works for me, which is the idea in the well, I guess really in anything, but particularly in the dieting world, freedom that comes through, quote, bright lines. So freedom that comes through boundaries and having a system and rules and regulations and how that ultimately can really, really work for people. And it doesn't have to be restrictive. And it it just 
really <laughs> is the way I personally live my life when it comes to diet and food and all of that. So I had been dying to interview the author on this show. And then more recently, she released a new book called Resume, The Powerful Reframe to End the Crash and Burn Cycle of Food Addiction. And the publisher actually reached out to book her on the show. And I was so excited because I'd been dying to interview her. So I was an immediate yes, even before reading the book. And then I read the book and okay, I am so excited because basically this book talks about something that I think is so important, but is not addressed that much in the whole world of books and literature and resources that help people with dieting and food addiction and things like that. And that is, I mean, it's a lot of concepts that we will go into in this episode, but basically the issue of when you are following a food plan that works for you, the constant worry and anxiety you have about, quote, falling off the wagon and losing your progress or losing your success. And then on top of that, if you do, quote, fall off the wagon, and we can talk about if there even is a wagon, but if you do do that, how to get back on, how to resume, how to reframe everything. So I just think this is such a valuable conversation. I can't wait to dive deep into it. I have so many questions, but I am here with Susan Pierce Thompson, the author of those books. Susan, thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Melanie. It's great to be here with you. So I'll just give the credentials to the audience so they are a little bit more familiar if they are not. So you have a PhD and you're an adjunct associate professor of brain and cognitive sciences at the University of Rochester, which right before this, I don't know why I've seen that was in the UK, that is in New York. You're also the president and institute for sustainable weight loss and the founder and CEO of Brightline Eating Solutions and the author of these books. So... To start things off, I actually am really curious how much my audience has read your books, but something I really love in your books is just how much detail you go into about your personal story and journey with everything. And it's, I think there's so many pieces that, I mean, even with me, things that I relate to. Could you tell listeners a little bit about your personal journey and what originally led you to Brightline Eating and then also the things that happened that made you realize you know, the need for this second book? or this other book. You have another book in between, right? Like a workshop type book? Actually, yeah. The second book is a cookbook, and then Resume is the third book. Yep. And I'm working on my fourth book right now. Oh, congratulations. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, my personal story, you know, I think like most people who are deep in a field of professional endeavor, you know, I came to it really organically and honestly, just that it's my background, right? And so not just with the food though, really my background started with drug addiction. So I, I could honestly say that the food addiction preceded drug addiction, but it wasn't fully formed yet. Food addiction was there in nascent form when I was a kid. But when I was 14, I found drugs and that came on fast and furious. And I graduated from, you know, the usual high school weed and pot experimentation that then by, you know, sophomore year, I was doing a lot of psychedelics and ecstasy. And by junior year, I was doing a lot of crystal meth, snorting a lot of speed. And when I found speed, I was so into it because I already was, I guess, distressed about how much I focused on food, how much my need to eat in ways that felt 
unhelpful, unhealthy, you know, just too much focus on food. Yeah, it was already bothersome. And so when I found speed, and I didn't need to focus on food anymore, because speed totally takes away your appetite and your, your focus on food. That was just a revelation to me. And I was I was super into it. And I did speed for a couple years, really, to the depths of drug induced psychosis, I dropped out of high school, crystal meth, basically, and I use the term speed and crystal meth interchangeably. I don't know if there's any molecular difference, but it's basically snorting white powder of, you know, amphetamine, basically. Yeah, it just burned my life to the ground with that. And then as a high school dropout, I floundered for quite a while. I did quit speed finally with the help of my dad. Didn't do any sort of program or rehab, just quit and never went back to it. Thank God. But then I was really only clean for a brief time. And then I found cocaine and then I learned to freebase cocaine, and then I was smoking crack off the street. And at some point along the way, I started to prostitute with an agency and started to make a lot of money doing that. And then, you know, at the age of 19 and 20, I was just doing drugs and, and living on the streets, basically, and, and that's what I was doing. So when I was 20 years old, I had a moment of clarity in the crack house that I used to smoke in all the time. And it was just, it was just one of these moments that you just can't explain. There wasn't, there wasn't anything that remarkable about it, except that I would, I had been living in such a state of numbness and non-consciousness for so long. I hadn't really ever chosen the life that I was living. It was just kind of this long series of creeping non-choices where, you know, one thing just sort of begat the next and there I was. And in that moment, it was a Tuesday morning in August of 1994. It was actually August 9th of 1994. And I had been smoking crack all weekend long, day after day after day after day, day into night, day into night, day into night, nonstop. And I had a shaved head. I had a blonde wig on my head. I was just 20 years old. I just turned 20 about six weeks prior to that. And I wasn't smoking crack rocks at the time. I was just sitting there kind of staring at the wall and there was a couple kicking heroin off to my left. They were like twitching, kind of like like a like fish on the deck of a boat, you know, that are out of the water. They were like twitching. And I was just sitting there and suddenly I was just awake, like alert, like really present. And I just looked around this room and looked at myself and my life just opened up in front of my eyes, kind of where I'd been and the expectations I'd had when I was a little kid doing really well in school, thinking I'd go to Harvard someday. And there I was, you know, a high school dropout years since I'd been in school, just, you know, doing nothing with my life. And I suddenly had this knowing that was so deep and it said, if I don't get up and get out of here right this second, this is all I'm ever going to be. And I could see or feel or intuit, I guess, in that my future, if I didn't leave right that moment, my future would be a long succession of cleaning up and then relapsing, cleaning up and then relapsing, cleaning up and then relapsing, prostitution, drugs, cleaning up, relapsing, on into infinity. Not that I was going to die. I was just going to keep living in those cycles. And I just knew it. And I, I 
I stood up and I grabbed my coat and I walked out the door. Melanie, I didn't have any knowledge of addiction at the time. I didn't have any tools for really changing my life. And so what happened next is the real miracle. Later that night, I had a date, a first date with a guy. Now, this wasn't for money. This was an actual like date, like normal people have dates with this really cute guy that I'd met at a gas station at three in the morning, a few nights prior. And he'd picked me up at this gas station. He was driving this old beat up pickup truck and we'd exchange numbers. Now he knew that I was a call girl. He used to drive for a call girl. So he saw my pager and he saw kind of how I was dressed and it was the middle of the night and I was answering a page, you know, this was 1994, right? I had a cell phone. No one had cell phones in 1994, but I was making a lot of money as a call girl. He was sober at the time, but he was a, he was an active sex addict. So he was clean and sober off drugs and alcohol, but he was active in his sex addiction. And so he picked me up, right? And we exchanged numbers and we'd been talking on the phone in the interim and he, we had our first date that night and he took me to a meeting, like a 12-step meeting for drug and alcohol recovery that night. Now this meeting had hundreds of people at it. It was like the place to be. And it was just where he liked to go on a Tuesday night. This meeting was called Tuesday Downtown in San Francisco. And we were going to go out afterwards, but he took me to this meeting and he didn't go thinking of me. He went thinking of himself. And, and, but I, I got into this meeting and I got a 24 hour coin and I've been clean and sober since that night. That was 28 years ago. So that experience right there is the turning point of my whole life. And it's what, you know, it's really through the 12 steps and meetings and recovery and so forth that I got introduced to addiction and recovery and the kind of brain that I have. I mean, people didn't talk about it in those terms, but I came to learn. I have a very addictable brain. And what happened after I got clean was immediately my food addiction took off and I gained a lot of weight, which I knew I would because I'd already you know, when I quit speed, I gained a, a lot of weight as well. I knew that when I quit smoking crack that I would gain a lot of weight, which happened. My life got better. I started doing well academically. I went to San Jose City College and got straight A's and transferred to UC Berkeley and got straight A's and got 4.0s and spoke at the graduation at UC Berkeley and majored in cognitive science. I started studying the mind and the brain. Meanwhile, my food addiction was raging. So I was writing papers, you know, eating snacks like a box of brown sugar would be a snack that I would eat as I was writing a college paper, right? And so I was gaining and gaining and gaining weight, fighting it, you know, to go trying to go to the gym. I started going to 12-step meetings for food, but you know, food is trickier. And so depending on what meetings you go to, you may or may not get any clarity about what to eat or not eat or what your bright lines for food should be, you know, what the definition of the, the, the equivalent of the first drink, which, you know, the alcoholic knows whether they're taking the first drink or not, but the food addict doesn't always know whether they're taking the first bite or not. It's actually really tricky, right? So started going to 12-step meetings for food, went to graduate school. Five years later, had my PhD in brain and cognitive sciences, did a postdoc in Sydney, Australia. It was about eight years later that I finally found food recovery in the form that I have it today where, you know, I don't eat sugar, I don't eat flour, I weigh and measure my food. So I was 28 before I lost my excess weight. By by the time of my mid-20s, I, I had clinical obesity. My weight climbed up that much. 
and now I'm a U.S. size four, you know, in women's sizes. Like I'm slender today. And I have been for, gosh, what's it been now? 18 years, 19 years. So anyway, I started studying the mind and the brain and I got really interested in in food and food addiction. Now, how I came to the academic study of food addiction is a is a, another story, but I should take a breath there and at least just pause. Like that's my backstory of drug and alcohol and food addiction and recovery, essentially. It's like reading a novel. It's a page turner. Okay. I have so many questions already. So you study the brain and cognitive science. I was just thinking, cause you were talking about that epiphany moment you had where you realized that that was going to be your life you know, people have these moments of insight where they make drastic change thereafter. From like an evolutionary perspective in the brain, like what would lead to that? Because presumably the actions that we're doing at any time, I'm guessing, you know, I feel like everything we're doing is a survival mechanism. So what do you think is the survival mechanism behind a moment of insight? That's a great question. You know, we teach insight in like, introductory psychology. And the main takeaway of what we teach is, well, first of all, it's a thing. It exists, right? The eureka moment, right? What's the story? The guy gets in the bathtub. He's been trying to figure out like how to figure out the the volume of a misshapen object or something like that. And he gets in his bathtub and the water goes up by a little bit. He jumps out of the bathtub shouting eureka. And the idea is like, you know, he had this moment of insight where you could use water displacement to figure out the the volume of a misshapen three-dimensional object, right? Well, what we know, and we've studied this with chimpanzees and with humans and so forth, given people problems to work on and so forth. And Moments of insight happen, but the interesting thing is that they don't come out of the blue. They come after someone's been noodling on a problem for quite a while. And all of that precursor work matters. It folds into the moment of insight. So I guess I must have been, and I'm not answering your question, and I know that. No, you actually are. (laughs) I was like, this is what I was actually wondering, yes. Yeah. And so I, I was, I must have been, you know, thinking about my state and my condition. And I know that, that prior to that, my dad, who'd been so instrumental in helping me get off crystal meth, had been confronting me about my crack smoking. He discovered that I was smoking crack. He'd also discovered that I was prostituting myself and he had, he'd been trying to work with me to get me to quit. And I'd, I'd been telling him, frankly, I, I don't think I can, Dad. It's got me. It's got me. I don't think I can quit. And there was a moment, I remember we were at a cafe together, and he got me to throw out my crack pipe, like I had a really fancy, you know, all the accoutrement of, of smoking crack, or like there's specific, you know, a specific lighter, a specific pipe, a specific little baggie to hold it all in and whatever. And I'd thrown it all out in the garbage, which was, you know, I remember I just went and bought other stuff. Like I was, I still had stuff to smoke with. And, but I remember all that to say, I guess the moment of clarity didn't come out of the blue. I'd been sort of thinking about quitting. I'd been imagining if I could quit. And so all of that was sort of leading up to the big moment where I just, I just decided to get out of there. But again, the, the, the 12 step meeting was what made it work. I mean, I, I ended up becoming a real, 
you know, two meetings a day, got a sponsor, worked the steps. I mean, it's really the recovery community that ended up saving my life. I, on my own, I probably would have stayed dry for two or three weeks. And then I would have picked up a beer thinking that was innocuous because, you know, at the time that wasn't really my issue. And I would have been right back to it for sure. That ties into a large topic in the book and something that will probably be very valuable to discuss. And so that's defining some words. This concept of addiction, you go into this deep in the book and it's it's honestly, I mean, I was shocked reading how society views addiction, particularly when it comes to food and how it's just not a thing. Like, <laughs> like, like, you know, you go through the, the 11 criteria for addiction, which all of them you can apply to food. I mean, just very clearly, maybe we can go through some of them. Sure. I mean, some of them are so obvious that it's ridiculous, like, like failure to cut back, like repeated attempts to cut back on your use, right? With no, without lasting success. And it's sort of like, uh, hello, multi-billion dollar diet industry, right? Like some of them are just so obvious, right? Or, or continued use despite harm, right? Where it's like, you know, all the people getting leg amputations because of their diabetes of the people who get a leg amputated because of diabetes, type two diabetes, 55% of them will have their second leg amputated after two years, right? As if we can't point to that and say, oh my gosh, continued use despite harmful consequences, right? Is could you have a more clear example? So yes, they, you know, food hits all of the categories and then some. Like time spent acquiring it, like thinking about how many people will go to get their food and like go out of their way to get these things. And the shocking moment, every now and then there are moments, and I can like remember when I hear it because I was listening to the audiobook. Oh, which by the way, her listener Susan actually narrates the audiobooks. My mouth dropped open because you went through the criteria and I was like, yeah, food. So food can pretty much fit all of these. And then you said it only requires two of those to qualify as an addiction, like for anything else that you're applying it to. Why do you think society doesn't view food as an addiction? Yeah, I think there's two big reasons. One is a fancy hoity-toity academic historical reason, and one is just a gut-level human reason. I'll I'll just do the gut-level human reason first, and that's that the people who decide these things have food addictions themselves, a lot of them, and don't want to face it. And I hadn't really thought that that was likely in the mix until I had a a conversation. And I, I don't know that he would want me to make public this particular thing he said. So I won't, I won't say who it was in particular, but it was an, it was an individual, it was a gentleman who has a lot of academic degrees to his name and even like being the president, the past president of like the most major addiction society in the United States. Okay. So big time addiction expert. And I was talking with him at a conference recently. It was actually the first international conference on food addiction, which was just held recently in the UK. And he was one of the keynote speakers. And I asked him point blank whether he thought that the upcoming application of food addiction to the DSM was going to be accepted. We both think it's probably not yet that it's going to be accepted sometime in the next 10 years, probably, but maybe not this round. There is a, a, a petition that's going into the, the DSM for the listeners who don't know is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. And so it's the catalog that has, you know, schizophrenia and depression and anxiety and 
substance use disorder and so forth. And there's a petition going in right now with a list of 400 research peer-reviewed journal articles, you know, in in substanti- substantiation to say, hey, food addiction should be in there. I said, do you think it's going to make it in? And he said, probably not. He said he was privy to the committee's deliberations when sex addiction was petitioned to get in, which is still not in there, by the way, which should be. And he said he knows someone on the committee. This is why I didn't want to say his name. He knows someone on the committee who has a full-blown sex addiction and who argued you know, vehemently that this should not be included. And he said, frankly, you know, when, when the people on these committees are human beings and, you know, my research shows that probably one third of people have a food addiction that's strong enough that it could be classified as, you know, highly food addicted. About 20% of the population have an extreme food addiction, like diagnostically extreme, you know, severe food addiction, 20%. But probably two-thirds of society have enough food addiction on board that if they try to do something like lose some excess weight, it's going to stop them from being successful, right? Two-thirds of society. This is not a trivial problem. And so enough of the committee are going to see food addiction in themselves that it's going to be problematic. Now, interestingly, the people who don't have it are also going to have a problem where they're going to be like, what are you talking about? I eat cookies and pizza all the time, chocolate, you know, chips all the time. And I don't have a problem. It's not, then they're going to think it's not addictive because they're missing a very basic nuanced point, which is that food addiction exists on a continuum. And there are some people who are simply not susceptible. They're not they're not susceptible to any addiction, it turns out, research shows, which is a fascinating thing. Note, note to the audience, when you hear people say everyone's addicted to something, they're wrong. About one-third of people are not susceptible to addiction at all. Now, that's not to say that they don't have bad habits, right? But addiction goes beyond a bad habit. Addiction is using when you don't want to be using anymore. You've been trying to cut back or stop altogether, and you cannot stop, right? Despite all the harmful consequences, despite your best efforts, that's addiction. So anyway, that's the mundane reason. I think that food addiction is not accepted in society because the powers that be, you know, some of them have it, (laughs) and and they're they're, uh, in denial to some extent and don't want to accept the label for everyone. So the other reason has to do with a very specific and very powerful and important quirk of history, which is that starting in the 1970s, when the diagnoses of anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa came on the scene, treatment approaches started to develop for those disorders. And without any knowledge of the brain, because we didn't have a sophisticated neuroscience of eating disorders or food or food addiction yet, that would emerge later. So without any knowledge of the brain, the sort of best guess on how to treat these disorders was to try to get these folks to eat like normal eaters eat, right? Which is to say, eat everything in moderation. Don't worry about it too much. Don't have big rules about what you can and can't eat because people with anorexia and bulimia nervosa are famous for sort of having these food rules, right? Like the anorexic might only eat 300 calories a day or, you know, only eat two bites of food at a time. Or, I mean, there could be, you know, a whole list of whatever rules, right? And so going into treatment, these folks would immediately be forced to abandon their food rules and start to eat all foods, including, you know, foods like cupcakes and, you know, cookies and 
chips and ice cream and all the foods, right? Including desserts multiple times a day, eating all foods. No food rules. That's the deal. All foods in moderation, no bad foods. And so what happened is that that mode of treatment wove its way into psychological lore, right? Like that this is the way it's done. And people with master's degrees in counseling psychology, clinical psychology, you know, master's in social work, eating disorders treatment, addiction treatment, all of these sorts of folks who were trained to treat people with eating disorders developed the impression from their academic studies that it's bad to have food rules, that the only healthy way to eat is to eat everything in moderation. Now, meanwhile, over on the side here, the study of the brain has galloped ahead. And to people who study the brain, food addiction is not controversial. You can point to it on a brain scan and you could just say, look, there's the nucleus accumbens. There's where the dopamine receptors have been blown out by eating all this ultra processed food. Look at how that looks exactly like the brain of a cocaine addict, exactly like the brain of a heroin addict, exactly like the brain of a late stage alcoholic. And food addiction is unequivocal. I mean, it's it's just not controversial that ultra-processed foods hit the addiction centers in the brain just like drugs of abuse, period, full stop. It's obvious. So food addiction is just real. It's just a fact. But you still have all of these people saying food addiction is controversial, I think, because as soon as you accept food addiction, then you have to say, well, what would treatment look like? And now some sort of abstinence comes into the mix. And now you've got these food rules that look frighteningly like the rules of the anorexic or the bulimic, right? Like I don't eat sugar. I don't eat flour. I weigh and measure my food, which turns out to be the prescription for someone who's got a late stage food addiction. And there you go. So it's all like, look around when you see the people saying it's controversial, they come from that background, the sort of eating disorders, treatment, which is often right hand in hand with uh, intuitive eating approach, right? And not to say that that's bad or that that's not a helpful treatment for certain kinds of things. It's just not helpful treatment for food addiction. And food addiction is not anorexia. It's not bulimia. They're different. And so that's the historical origin of the resistance to food addiction as a concept. But it's just a matter of time. I mean, I think people in society generally if they're if they're paying attention they know food addiction is real it's just pretty obvious right so yeah hi friends do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests i've had on the show you simply must come to the 10th annual biohacking conference May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando, and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and Dry Farm Wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind-blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples, meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like BrainTap, Infrared Sauna, Hyperbaric Oxygen Chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. 
You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys. And you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. I would love to be in that meeting when they presented and hear the arguments on both sides. I would love to hear the, the side of why they think it's not an addiction. Yeah, me too. Well, I mean, we got an answer back from the ICD. So the DSM is only the handbook of choice in the United States, pretty much. Worldwide, it's the ICD, which is put out by the World Health Organization. And our petition to the, I mean, I say I, I wasn't, I wasn't one of the authors of the petition, but I'm in the community of professionals, you know, who are in support of this. And the petition to the ICD was rejected. And there, this was just a year ago or so. And, you know, there were a lot of reasons. One is, I think, potentially fair, which is that more research needs to be done. Now, not on that food addiction is real, but really on what recovery looks like. Like evidence-based recovery is not well studied yet. I've actually published, you know, the lion's share of the work on it, which is to say just a few studies. There aren't many on what recovery looks like. And so, you know, when you're talking about medical diagnoses and treatments, okay, they have a fair point that we need more research on the treatment side. And it's hard to get research on treatment when treatment modalities are expensive and aren't covered by insurance because we don't have a a disease diagnostic category yet, right? So it's a little bit of a chicken and egg problem. I find it really interesting that you can diagnose based on not eating, but you can't diagnose based on eating, like with anorexia. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know there's more factors that go into anorexia than just the not eating part of it. Well, that's some of what they said, actually, in the ICD rejection. They Some of it was, you know, what, what here is not covered by other diagnoses? And so they're talking about binge eating disorder, for example, right, which I think does share a lot of features of food addiction. So does bulimia. As a matter of fact, one, Ashley Gerhardt and her colleagues published a study showing that active patients with active bulimia nervosa, 100% of the time qualify for food addiction. Once they're in remission, only 30% of them qualify for a continued food addiction. So the ICD was in part saying, you know, we already have diagnoses for eating disorders. One of the differentiators, though, is someone with a food addiction, but not necessarily an eating disorder, would find peace through abstinence from processed foods, which isn't necessarily what someone would experience if they don't have a food addiction. I'm really fascinated by that stat you said about a third of people not actually having addictions. So 
Is it those, and you touched on that and you also touched on the hot topic word of intuitive eating. Is it those people who don't have addiction who can safely do intuitive eating? And then do people who have addictions, if the addiction relates to food, is intuitive eating probably always not going to pan out so well? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, that's generalizations tend not to work because there's always exceptions at the margin. But if you're going to paint with a broad brush, I would say that's going to come out to be a nice picture. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. So just to kind of restate, a third of people don't have don't have susceptibility to addiction at all. And I mean, literally, they they're not they're not going to get hooked on cigarettes. They're not going to get hooked on caffeine. They're not going to get hooked on heroin, even if you shoot them up with heroin, you know, every six hours, every day, they're not going to get hooked on it. You could say, well, that's ridiculous. Heroin is physiologically addictive. Of course they are. And, and what I mean is, yeah, they'll develop tolerance. And if, if you stop shooting them up with hero, heroin, they'll go through withdrawal, but they'll be grateful to get off it and they won't go looking for another hit. It's so weird, but it's true. Like the, we send people home with, not we, I'm not a physician, but you know, they send people home with op- heavy opiate prescriptions after surgeries, after back surgery. Pe- some people have to take opiates every four to six hours for months and years. And then when it's time to wean off, some people are just like happy to wean off, like easy, right? Which is like, what? And there are people who don't need their morning cup of coffee. Like they, they'll have it or not. Like they'll have it most mornings. And it's like, what? Or they'll have a cigarette at a concert, maybe another one. And then they won't even think about cigarettes for another few months. And it's just bizarre, but it's true. They're not addictable. But most people are somewhat addictable. uh, And then a third of people are highly addictable. So yeah. Like their dopamine levels, are they different from people who have addiction issues? You know, interesting question. I don't know of the research on this in that way. I don't know if that's been studied, actually. I literally don't know of a study that shows that. What I do know is that they their brains orient differently toward the cues that predict the rewards, which is an interesting thing, right? So when a reward comes, they just focus on the reward. And they're like, oh, that's nice. The addictable brain is really keyed in to all the preceding cues that predicted that reward and gets sucked in, like develops an affinity, an affection, an appreciation, a draw toward the cue that predicts that reward, which sucks it into a certain environment. It draws it toward a certain context. Suddenly they're picking up the substance again or or engaging in the process if it's a behavioral addiction. And so it's it's the brain that focuses on all the environmental or tangible cues that predict rewards, that predict the hit that's coming, that gets trapped in the flytrap, if you will. The brains that are just like, oh, look, a hit. Wee, that was good. Thanks. They don't get stuck in the flytrap. So it's it's a differential wiring of the brain around the cues. And so the addictive brain has heightened cue sensitivity, whereas the non-addictive brain does not. That's what I was wondering. That makes sense. When people implement a system, I guess an abstinent-based system that works for them for their food addiction, and maybe you can briefly discuss the Bright Line Eating approach, Like, is that remission? Is that a cure? How easily can somebody just fall back into their old ways? 
Yeah, great question. Okay, so it's not a cure. It's it's remission is a great word. So you can put the disease in remission. You can put the active manifestation of the food addiction or whatever addiction into remission. But once you've been addicted, you always have the brain of an addict. And, and in particular, your brain has already wired up once to the cues that predict those particular rewards. And that wiring up process takes time. It takes a lot of instances within a specific domain, a domain like food or shopping or gambling or sex or whatever, right? It takes a lot of experiences to wire up an addiction. Addictions don't wire up like boom on the first use, right? And then once the brain's gone through that wiring up process, that's laid a lot of fiber tracks in the brain and they still exist, unfortunately. So I think of them, I teach people to think of them as dry riverbeds. So it, you know, you could ask like, well, how long does it take to build a habit? How long does it develop? How, do, how long does it take to de- develop an addiction? And the answer is, well, it's like, it's like water running over dry land. How long does it take to groove a river? Well, the longer the water flows, the deeper the river bed gets, right? And when you stop the water flowing in the river, you still have a dry riverbed. And you will always have a dry riverbed. Now, it might become, you know, grown in with shrubs and leaves and branches and stuff, like just detritus and stuff, just from lack of use. But if you start putting water down that riverbed at all in any volume, that those leaves and branches are going to just wash away and you will very quickly have a rushing river again. Now, the thing about relapse is it's, it's the parts of us, and I'm assuming we're going to start talking about parts at some point, it's the parts of us that have a freak out around the breaking of abstinence that can accelerate the flare-up of a relapse so that it literally can be that in a nanosecond, you're back to as bad as ever, right? But even without hyper-perfectionistic parts and, you know, massive indulger, addictive indulger, indulger parts, jump parts of us jumping in to accelerate the relapse, the brain never forgets. It's just the reality. I mean, we've done studies on, you know, people who learned French for the first year and a half of their lives and then were whisked away to Thailand and, you know, or whatever. And, you know, then they learned French again at the age of 80 and they still learned it, you know, super fast compared to someone who'd never been exposed to French at all. The brain just doesn't forget. Once it's learned something, that learning is there and dormant in the brain from then on. And so that's the neural substrate of the like, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic adage. It really is true. And it just has to do with the way neural wiring works. That makes me wonder just the role of, I think often, and maybe this is a little bit of a tangent, but often in society, people might think with like kids, you know, let them eat things while they're kids. And then when they're adults, they can make better choices. But it's like maybe you shouldn't expose kids to that at all and then let them make choices once they're adults. Or does it not matter when you start? Like, could you, like, if you had never been exposed to addictive foods and had that experience, then could that happen as an adult later, I suppose? It can. It could, it could happen at any age. But as a parent of three kids, I got to tell you, raising kids to eat anything. <laughs> 
in our society is about the worst nightmare that I can imagine. Like really try to figure out how to feed your kids in the society if you're conscientious is really, really hard. I mean, unless you live in a commune somewhere, you know, in a compound in the, you know, in the woods somewhere and all that everyone's eating is just, just pure, whole, real healthy food and there just isn't any other option. But if you're living in society and kids are going to birthday parties, they're going to restaurants, they're going to you know, food gatherings at a religious place or a school or, you know, whatever, like the challenge is you're faced with your kid's brain comparing whatever food you're serving at home to what they're getting out there. And they know the difference. They know, you know, that, you know, at some point they're going to notice like, hey, the food we eat, you know, there's nothing to eat in this house, you know, and even my kids will say there's nothing to eat in our house, even though they eat they eat so much crap from my perspective. Like they're eating food in my house that I would never eat, most of it, you know. And and yet their perspective is there's nothing good to eat in our house because the gap still between what we eat in our house and what they're getting out there in the world is so enormous. And it's just torture trying to feed kids in this society. It really is. Yeah, I don't have kids and I don't know if I ever will, but that's actually a a primary reason I don't want them is I don't want that responsibility of dealing with that. It just seems like a lot to deal with. So I applaud you. Well, really quick, just on this, and then we can close out this topic. Ironically, the saving grace of feeding kids comes from someone who is an ardent, staunch disbeliever in food addiction. God bless her. But she's got a method for feeding kids that I've used all the way through. And it's, and it saved me pretty well. I mean, you know, I don't know, my kids are 14, 14 and 11, still a little too early to tell who knows, you know, if they'll end up scot free or totally saddled with food addiction, I have no idea. But I've this method has really worked. And so I just want to mention it for any listeners. It's it's called the division of responsibility. And it's by a woman named Ellen Satter. And I'll spell that because you can get her stuff on her website. And she's got some really good books, Ellen, E-L-L-Y-N, Satter, S-A-T-T-E-R. And she doesn't believe in food addiction and she teaches kind of a moderation-based approach, which for kids I think is the right way, right? I don't think either extreme is going to be good for kids, right? Let them eat everything or, or you know, you know, only feed them kale and tofu. I don't think either approach is going to be effective. Like some middle road is what's needed for kids. And her method lays out the clear rules of like, you know, what to focus on, what to let go, how to structure it. And it's brilliant. It's called The Division of Responsibility by Ellen Satter. I highly recommend it. Thank you. I know that will help a lot of people. So we'll put links to that in the show notes. Actually, one last question about the kids, the actual addictions themselves. So both the potential to be addicted to anything at all versus not. And then if you are addicted, what you're specifically addicted to, is any of that genetic? Yeah. Okay. So the propensity for addiction or the susceptibility to addiction is highly genetic, not entirely genetic, but highly genetic. And there's also an environmental component. So for example, in the lab, you take baby rats, you know, born to a non-addictable mother and a non-addictable father, that litter of rats will will be non-addictable baby rats. But then if you raise them in abusive, horrible conditions, some percentage of them will end up being addictable. So you know, you can just extrapolate that to human beings and imagine or surmise that even without addiction in your family tree, if there's some 
you know, significant amount of trauma. So you can look at an ACE score, adverse childhood experiences, right? And and guess that if your ACE score is pretty high, you might have a susceptibility to addiction, even if you don't have a lot of addiction in your family. But generally speaking, you can get a sense of addictability just by looking at you know, how much addiction runs in your family. And so we're not just talking about alcoholism and drug addiction, but look for smoking, look for obesity, look for, you know, yeah, any known addictions. And yes, it's, it's, it's pretty well genetic. The rat thing reminds me, I um, interviewed Dr. Anna Limke for her book, Dopamine Nation. And did you know that a lot of the rodent studies that we've done for things like metabolic health and exercise and things like that might be a little bit misleading or skewed because they've realized that rats can be addicted to the running wheels. So like we think we're testing, you know, the rat exercising, but really there could be an addiction aspect in play. And so that the findings of a lot of studies might be slightly misinterpreted. I thought that was fascinating. There's a little fun fact. <laughs> Exercise addiction is a thing. I, you know, people come into bright line eating and I've got, you know, unusual guidelines around exercise, but you know, some of it is I've, you know, a lot of people come in really hooked on exercise or at least mentally thinking of it in really unhelpful ways, you know, thinking of it as a, as a weight control mechanism, as opposed to, you know, I'm exercising for my mood. I'm exercising for my bones, you know, and so forth. But anyway, that's interesting. No, I didn't know that. Thank you for sharing that with me. That's interesting. So going back to what we're talking about with the, what were you calling them? Not troughs, but riverbeds. So this potential to, you know, fill that back up at any time, like it's already there, it's ready and waiting. You talk in your book about the go versus the no-go pathway. And I was wondering if you talk a little bit more about that. Like basically the idea of having restrictions or rules or boundaries and like not letting things in. And then why is it that if we do flip, like I think people might've experienced this where they're like on a diet, they think they're doing well or, you know, but maybe they're white knuckling it or maybe they're not. But in any case, they stop it for whatever reason. And then it's just like, it's not like you just like stop it. Yeah. The floodgates are open all of a sudden. Yeah. Is there a, something happening in the brain that's making that happen? Well, it's actually one of my goals to find the neural instantiation of that. I, I hypothesize in my book that it might be the go, no go pathways. But, you know, through reading Stephen Guinea's fabulous book, The Hungry Brain, he talks about the basal ganglia and its role in helping us decide what we do next, basically, which is a really interesting problem. You know, if you think about the literally infinite number of possible things that we could do next, every moment, there's just an, inf I mean, right now, you could stand up and do a jumping jack. You could sit down and do a sit-up. You could pick your nose. You could spin around three times. You could yelp, you know, zebras. Yeah, I mean, like there's just, there's literally an infinite number of things you could do. Probably for you and I, Melanie, any of the things I just mentioned were not on the array of options, right? Like I'm just going to sit here and keep talking to you and try to keep my mouth the right distance from the microphone, right? And so there's just this interesting problem of like, what's what's allowing the sweet the relatively narrow suite of options to come onto the table for selection at any given moment like what appears on that table for you to select this that or that and it's a pretty narrow selection suite right at any given moment because basically what what we're talking about is 
eating any number of the infinite number of things that one could eat. I could drive here and buy this. I could, I could go home and make that. I could order this off this app or, you know, there's so many things that we could do. And when we're in that state of successful protection, restraint, whatever you want to call it, we're in the, we're in the no-go state of brain, driving to that convenience store and buying that food, ordering this thing off this app. They're, they're often not even coming up onto the table as options. It's not like we're batting them down with a, with a stick, right? It's like it's not even occurring to us. This is what I call food neutrality. This is what a lot of t- people in 12-step programs call neutrality, where you're in a state of neutrality, safe and protected. It's not even occurring to you to do it, which is the desired state, right? Because frankly, resisting temptation nonstop 24-7 is too exhausting. And it's it's a hellish way to live, frankly. No one would sign up for that. And, and I promise you, it's not what it feels like. Once your brain is somewhat healed, you're not feeling like that. On the other hand, once you break the streak of abstinence, suddenly, all at once, all these options are coming up on the table, right? Like, and not only that, you can't, it's like they're not just there, but they're getting preferential treatment, right? And Stephen Guinea talks about this part of the basal ganglia, like, like being like the bouncer that lets certain people in through the velvet red rope at the nightclub, right? Like he's like scanning the crowd and letting certain ones in. And it's like, how does, you know, so there's there's some sort of, inhibitory process that suppresses, I'm imagining, all these options when you're in this precious state of of mental recovery. And when you're not in that state, suddenly, not only do they become options, but they're given preferential treatment. And, and, and in the extreme, you can't say no, you actually can't not do it. So it doesn't just flip. It's, it's sort of like magnets. You know, those two, when you take two fridge magnets, and when you're in the, the brain-protected state, it's almost as if the magnets are flipped around where they repel each other. They actively repel each other. Like, I, I don't think I could eat a donut right now if I, even if I had the vague thought to, I couldn't really do it. Like, I don't eat sugar and flour. And I have a really strong mental identity around that. It would be like, it would be like the most vegetarian Buddhist, like just would not eat a bite of steak. Like you just couldn't. I'm the same way. (laughs) (laughs) You couldn't get them to eat a bite of steak. Right. But you know, if I've had, if I had a pint of ice cream last night and now, you know, those donuts wouldn't have a chance. I'd be gobbling them up for sure. So anyway, yeah, I, there is, there is neuroscience behind all that. It's a fascinating, fascinating area to really uncover. Hi friends. Okay. So I'm a little bit embarrassed because I've been talking for so long about red light and near infrared therapy, which is so, so important. However, I kind of left out something really important about light. So as you guys know, I've been talking about red light and near infrared for so long. And at the same time during the day, I was using a bright, sad light. So it's those white lights that help with waking you up, help with your circadian rhythm. They're used to combat mood issues and depression. So I have a really bright white one of those at my desk. A few things about that. I knew it helped wake me up and kept me stimulated, but I wasn't sure if it had any detrimental effects using it. And then two, I was also wondering if by just focusing on red and near-infrared light, was I somehow missing something in the full spectrum of light? Guess what? I was. And guess what? 
I found the solution. And guess what? I have a discount for you guys. So the founder of a company called Soulshine reached out to me and he was like, do you know about the importance of full spectrum light? And I was like, you know what? I've been wondering about this for quite a while. Please educate me. Oh my goodness. This man blew my mind. I talk a lot about the problems of blue light. That said, we evolved in natural full spectrum sunlight that our genes are programmed to respond to. And today we do not spend enough time in that light. A lot of us don't go outside and we're overexposed to blue light. It's a problem. And then to make things even more problematic, the common sad lights that I was talking about that are bright white, they actually do not contain the full spectrum light. They filter out certain wavelengths and they're high in blue light. So just like I thought, It was not doing my health many services. There is only one company I have found, or I guess that found me, that makes a full spectrum white light device. So the Soul Light Systems include the fullest spectrum of visible and invisible near-infrared light with traces of UV light. Yep, that's right, because you need all of that as well. Don't worry, it's not an exuberant amount that's going to cause a problem. It's just a tiny little dose that your body actually needs. You can use these lights to fix your circadian rhythm and properly stimulate your brain's suprachiasmatic nucleus, or SCN, in a way that it was supposed to be stimulated. It's kind of like the natural spectral diet. Because yes, you may be suffering from malillumination. Did you know that your entire bloodstream actually filters through your eyes in a relatively short amount of time, that's the only way your blood is exposed to the outside world. So when we expose our eyes to this light, it actually can have beneficial effects on our blood. That is crazy. It helps with skin, with mood. This is the light that I wasn't thinking about that we need. I love Soulshine's light therapy devices. I do use it in combination with my red and near-infrared light devices as well so that I can fully bathe my body in the best light that is so helpful for my sleep, for my stress, for my metabolism, for my immunity, for my health, so many things. They have so many different device options. They have one that I love that kind of looks like a juve and I sit it on my desk and it has options for the full spectrum light, which is that bright white light, as well as an near infrared option. So what I do is I do a session of the full spectrum light in the morning and then I run the near infrared to help counteract the negative blue light around me. They also have stands with bulbs that you can get. I've been using some of those on my plants. I am just so grateful that Ken at Soulshine found me because I was missing out on such a key aspect of light and I had no idea. And you can get 10% off at melanieavalon.com slash soulshine. That's S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code Melanie Avalon. So melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code Melanie Avalon for 10% off. It's really helped my mood, my energy, my sleep, so many things. I think you guys will love it. So again, go to melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to get 10% off site-wide. And we'll put all this information in the show notes. It's so interesting because going back to like the identity and everything, like you just talked about with the flour and sugar. So I'm the same way with the flour and sugar and I'm the same way in that. So if I were to, I have a really strong identity surrounding it. I know what makes me feel good. I know what works for me. It would be so hard to just eat a donut and then not eat like anything else. Like that would be one, honestly, one of the hardest things I can think of to do. And the only way I actually had to do it sort of recently, a few months ago, because I had to eat this, there's this company called Zoe. I don't know if you've heard of them. They measure metabolic health. You eat these special muffins that have specific percentages of sugar 
carbs, fat, and protein, but it measures how you process fat versus sugar. And you wear a continuous glucose monitor and everything. And you have to like eat a muffin and then like wait like four hours and then like eat another muffin. I did that and it was miserable. And the only way I was able to do it though, was because there was such a strong, like protective boundary. Like I literally couldn't eat. I was wearing the CGM. I was like doing it for science, but I've just been really fascinated by like like I have this really strong identity, but I really feel like I could only do that in that very controlled situation. Well, isn't that an interesting thing? Because I have found that medicine, if if someone believes that they're taking sugar for medicine, it doesn't hit their brain the way it would if they were deliberately eating sugar to get a hit off the sugar. For example, no one gets triggered by the colonoscopy prep. It's loaded with sugar, but and it's gross granted, but nobody gets triggered by it. And, you know, if it were just, just the physiology with no psychology involved, you know, giving this bolus of sugar should absolutely have an impact on their ability to keep to their, you know, their bright lines or their abstinence or whatever downstream, but nobody gets triggered by the colonoscopy prep. So I definitely think that your cognitive awareness of I'm doing this for science in this context within this, you know, within this setting definitely plays a role. And and a lot of learning is actually context specific like that. So it makes sense that the brain would have been able to form some sort of subgroup, you know, or subtype where this ca- this instance was cordoned off and and deemed separate, special, specific, and didn't apply to your identity or to your, you know, your choices thereafter. Something else interesting I learned from doing that muffin experiment was, because this was when I was hosting with my co-host Jen Stevens on the Intermittent Fasting Podcast, and a lot of people do these muffins, and they're not, so they're basically just like sugar and flour, but they're not, quote, good muffins because they have to be this special science thing. They're not made to be like really addictive or palatable or anything like that. And so people moan and moan about how like awful the muffin, like so many people were talking about how the muffins were so hard to eat and they could barely eat the rest of the muffin. And before doing it, I was telling Jen on the show, I was like, I think this muffin is going to taste amazing to me. Like, I, like, I, I don't <laughs> like, it's probably going to be the best thing I've ever had. And she was like, no, like you'll see, it doesn't taste that good. And I was like, you just wait. I ate that muffin. It was literally like the heavens open. Like it was like singing. It was like, cause it was the first time I'd had sugar and flour in over a decade. And then what's interesting, I, I pulled the audience after I asked people, did they like the muffins or did they not? And did they normally eat processed foods or did they not? And the correlation was so strong. So basically people who ate processed foods normally thought, thought the muffins were, you know, yeah. But if people just ate whole foods, they taste amazing. So I think it's really powerful, <laughs> but Going back to the concept of the floodgates opening and everything, that can seem very scary. (laughs) This idea that, you know, we might be on this plan and feel like it's working, but maybe we're just one bite away from, you know, all hell breaking loose. So how do we reframe that? (laughs) Which is basically, it's the topic of your book, Resume. Yeah, totally. Well, it has to do with a lot of nuance, right, Melanie? So on the one hand, I really think that it's okay to have an abstinence-based approach, like to like to just say sugar doesn't work for me. I don't eat sugar, categorically. I don't eat sugar. But as soon as you do that, it does set up a perfectionistic mindset, right? And a potential trap, 
right? Where if you have any sugar, now it's licensing all the sugar, all the sugar. And so one of the ways out of that, well, one of the ways I think you have established in your muffin experience, which is identity, right? You need to have an identity that's so strong and a why that's bigger than a diet or anything like that, right? If you do what you do for a reason that's that's very core and central and driven, then you'll be brought back eventually to need to solve that problem because it just won't be sufficient to go back. It won't work to go back to... I eat all the muffins all the time. I eat all the junk food all the time. But then how do you do it? How do you do it? Well, this is where parts work comes in, right? Because the part of you that wants to just eat everything with no holds barred isn't really you, right? It's a part of you that we could call a food indulger part. And now I'm I'm talking in IFS language, So it's probably worth pausing for a moment to introduce your listener to internal family systems if they don't already know what that is. So internal family systems is an evidence-based branch of psychology that was founded in the early 1980s by a guy named Richard Schwartz, who's an academic. He's now on the faculty at Harvard Medical School. And at the time, he was at the University of Chicago. And internal family systems is actually one form of doing parts work in a long history of parts perspectives that goes all the way back to ancient Egypt. And then there's, you know, it's in the Bible. It's It was talked about by Freud and Nietzsche and Carl Jung. And, you know, we can go all the way. I mean, parts, parts perspectives go all the way back through time as far as written record exists. But the idea here is that the human psyche in its healthy state, I'm not talking about dissociative identity disorder or multiple personality disorder. I'm talking about every one of us, uh, you know, every one of us. The human psyche is not fundamentally unified behind one set of motives and one way of seeing things. The human psyche is actually made up of parts of us that think different ways. And this is why it's possible to want to eat a donut and not want to eat a donut in the same moment, right? You can want and not want at the same time. And give me any attractive person or any good-looking food or any, you know, anything, right? And I can want it and not want it at the same time, right? And that's because I have, I'm made up of different parts. And so the food indulger part is a part that comes into assuage distress, whether it's stress or hurt or wounding, overwhelm or what have you, right? Boredom. And so when we look at how that part is trying to help us, now we start to get somewhere. That part is probably a younger part. It probably developed some time ago when we needed soothing and comforting and distracting and numbing in our lives. And that part helped us by turning to food. And it worked. And that part had developed a strategy that was really helpful. And it keeps using that strategy and suggesting it as a way to provide relief, to provide whatever it is, to provide excitement, to provide something to do, to provide entertainment, to provide, yeah, stress relief, right? Comfort, whatever it is. And so that part probably got more extreme when it was put at odds with a food controlling part 
So the here's where the anorexic and bulimic treatment providers are onto something, right? What they say is basically you can't abst- you can't imagine yourself abstaining from all things from something perfectly. That's not realistic, and it creates eating disorder tendencies, and it sets you up to want it more, right? And so what it's talking about, what they're talking about there has some merit. And what they're saying is basically, if you hand your life over to the food controller, that's going to try to make your food just so you're going to pit that food controller against a food indulger part and make that food indulger part more extreme. And now you've got a war, you've got a polarization between the food controller and the food indulger. And this, by the way, is work is the work of I have to mention my colleague Everett Considine, who's an internal family systems practitioner extraordinaire, and he's done a lot of the cutting edge work on the internal family systems perspective as it applies to food and eating. So basically, the way out of that war is what you're asking. Like, how do we reframe? How do we solve the issue? And the reality is that ultimately living your life from a food controller perspective isn't going to work either. It, it'll work in the sense that it'll get your excess weight off, it'll handle your food problem, but it's a, it's a rigid and fear-based way to live as well. And what you want to do is you want to run a self-led program. Self-led meaning your highest self, which is who you're being when you're calm, clear, compassionate, connected, confident, courageous, curious, creative, those are the, the C's of highest self in internal family systems. When you stay in that place, so for example, if you've just eaten this muffin for science, right, can you stay calm? Can you stay confident in your identity as someone who doesn't eat sugar and flour? And can you be curious? Like, okay, I just ate this muffin. This is interesting. I had a reason for it, right? Can you be creative in terms of thinking about, you know, ways that you could get yourself some more support after that, for example, or ways you could think about this event in in a non-threatening way, right? Can you be compassionate toward yourself and say, hey, I just made a choice that was actually really self-empowering because I really want the data that's going to come out of what I just learned, right? Did you learn cool stuff, Melanie, from eating that muffin? I did. I learned it was pretty intuitive with what I was thinking, that I process fat better than sugar. Interesting. Yeah. So when you return yourself to your highest self, you can circumvent a lot of the panic and the polarization between the food indulger part and the food controller part. And you can keep your food indulger part from spinning out and exacerbating whatever neural circuitry might be there. Which, which frankly, underlyingly isn't that strong. I mean, I, I know, you know, like the, the addiction piece of a, of a cigarette, like a cigarette withdrawal is actually really minor. People aren't going back and back and back to cigarettes because they're dying from the cigarette withdrawal. Cigarette withdrawal is minor. It's a mental game, right? Cigarette addiction is so fierce because the opportunities to smoke are so numerous and the cues in the environment that, that trigger you to want another cigarette are so voluminous because you used to smoke practically all throughout the day, right? So it's a mental game. It's a mental game. And I could go into it more, but I've been talking about this for a long time already. But there's more in the book Resume if you want to learn more about these parts. And there are some writing exercises you can do and some inventories you can take to see which parts sort of are dominant in you. And yeah, it's helpful stuff. 
literally listeners get the book, like just get it right now because there's so much information and we're just barely even skimming the surface on it. So a question about implementing that parts work. We just talked about the muffin example, but presumably I'm just laughing because I'm thinking about so many interviews I've heard, like intuitive eating type interviews where they'll say that you need to work on being able to eat these things that you struggle with in moderation. So you need to like work on that. So practically implementing the parts work, how much of it is working in the mindset when you have not fallen off of your plan? And then how much of it is required to work on? Like, do you have to fall off the plan to work on it? Yeah. Great question. Great question. So what I recommend if, if someone is, is on a plan and doesn't want to fall off the plan and wants to inoculate themselves against relapse. Because I do believe, you know, decades of unbroken adherence to a plan are absolutely possible. Like you don't need to fall off. The best way to do that is, and I talk about this in the book, it's called the resume reframe. And there's three components of it. If we're talking about a food program here, it's food actions support, FAS. And so the three components have a lot to them with food. It's like the specifics of what your food plan is, how you keep those borders and boundaries sharp and clean, the lines between what you eat and don't eat really clean. Habits like writing down your food the night before is just a really great one. Packing your lunch before you leave, food prep, all those sorts of things. The actions has to do with morning routine and evening routine. And then the support has to do with not doing it alone, like being a part of a community of people so that your identity stays really robust and you have a lot of support to help bolster the natural weathering and erosion that happens to your identity as you live in the world and you withstand these comments from people about how this is so extreme and you can't live like this forever and all these non-thinking comments from people who probably have nothing like your background or experience with food and what they're saying is just not relevant to your experience, but it it wears nonetheless, right? It wears on us. So food action support, what, what you do is you set up a strong program and then you have a system for inventorying yourself so that you notice if you're slipping because the reality is you're going to slip, but you will slip in little ways before you slip in big ways. And if you are noticing that in advance, you will know the relapse is coming long before it happens. And that means you can absolutely get back into your upswing, your resume phase, before you ever crash down into the what I call the danger and destruction zone, where you're like actually eating the actual donuts, right? You have mentally eaten the donut in some way, shape or form long before the donuts in your mouth. And if you can notice that it's coming, you don't ever need to actually relapse. I love the whole concept, like especially with like the book cover, it's like a graph and everything. And you talk about like waves and signs and curves and it's just a really nice analogy. How do we define success here? Is success when you don't have the anxiety and worry about relapsing, but you might fall off? And then if you do, you get back on? Or is success the amount of times that you fall off? Like, how do we know how we're doing? Yeah, great question. I mean, I think it's specific to the individual. So something that I talk about is the food addiction susceptibility scale, right? Because being a food addict or not is not actually a binary. So it's not like you're a food addict or not. 
it's more like, well, to what degree do you have food addiction already in your wired into your brain, right? And so I've got a quiz that I give people and it and it spits out a number from one to 10, one being low, meaning not a food addict at all and probably not susceptible to addiction at all. 10 being really far advanced food addiction. I got a 10. You got a 10. You took the quiz. You got a 10. There you go. There you go. Well, and this is why not eating sugar or flour at all for a decade now serves you, right? It's it's the way to go. This is a this is an empowered, empowering, self-caring choice for you, right? This is not extreme. This is like, it's sort of like when people say that's extreme, I sort of think, well, open heart surgery is extreme. You know, having a leg amputated from diabetes is extreme. What's the moderate amount of cyanide for a human being, right? None, right? Like the word moderation needs to factor in the two entities involved. The moderate amount of sugar for Melanie or for Susan is none because we are entities that just explode into all kinds of, you know, unhelpful stuff. It's poison to us. It's not food. It's poison. So anyway, back to your question. How do you define success? If you're a 10 on that scale, then yeah, success is probably going to be defined by years and years and years of unbroken abstinence, you know, unbroken, squeaky clean, bright lines, however you want to phrase it. So for the listener, a bright line is just a clear boundary that you just don't cross. So it's like for an alcoholic in recovery, not drinking is the bright line, no alcohol, a bright line for alcohol, right? And so Melanie's shared, you know, no sugar or flour for over 10 years. So if you're a 10, then that kind of perfection is actually what you're going for. And anyone who thinks that that's not feasible, it's sort of like, well, people quit smoking and don't have a cigarette perfectly for years and decades until they die. It's absolutely doable. You don't, you, yes, you have to eat to live, but you do not have to eat donuts to live. And you cannot eat donuts perfectly one day at a time for the rest of your life. You really can, right? And so I get that there's sugar and flour and lots of things, but actually, you know, there's just gajillions of things to eat that don't have sugar and flour in them. And, you know, if you just look at the Bright Line Eating Food Plan, it's like every whole real food is on the plan. Every, every one, you know, there's so much food to eat. So if you're a 10, success is going to be, you know, never breaking your bright lines. But if you're a six, right, then success might absolutely be resuming quickly when you deviate at, with minimal mental distress over it, right? And staying in an ebb and flow where your weight is in your sort of bright body range, like your desired. We talk about a bright body and bright line eating because we don't, you know, we found that there aren't good words to talk about body size in our, in our messed up society. You cannot win. <laughs> you cannot win, right? So it's like whatever's, whatever's comfy for you, right? But ideally, we, I think we can all agree that like having a weight that fluctuates so much that you're having to buy whole new wardrobes of clothes on the regular is like suboptimal, right? <laughs> like, like just financially, right? Or just whatever, right? So at least staying steady in a range that you feel comfortable in is, is what we're aiming for, right? So if you're a six, you might define success that way, right? Where your, your weight is stable, you're not having to buy new clothes and, you feel good in your body, your health is is solid, you know, you're staying with your plan enough to get the results that you want, which is relative peace. And you get back on track quickly if you have any lapses. 
Hi friends. So I'm sort of haunted by clothes. If you follow me on Instagram, you probably know that I love wearing all the new clothes all the time. And I know that that is not really sustainable and not good for the planet. That's why I am thrilled that there is now a way to get all of the clothes with none of the waste. And I'm going to tell you how you can get unlimited clothes with no waste for a month for free. That's right, I now have a website for both myself and you guys where you can get free unlimited clothes with free shipping, free exchanges, nonstop from all of the hottest brands, and it is so incredibly easy. It's called MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. We have so many incredible brands, including my favorites like BCBG, Calvin Klein, and so many more. Think like a hundred brands. There are so many options. And the way it works is when you get a subscription, you search through the clothes, pick what you want. They send it to you with fast, easy shipping. You wear it as long as you want. And then when you're ready for more clothes, you just drop it off in their prepackaged envelope and get your next round. It is so incredibly cool. They have multiple plans. The starter plan gives you two pieces at a time. Friends, I actually have a little secret hack. Don't tell them that I told you this. When you get your two pieces, you can actually immediately go into your account, click return, and they'll go ahead and send you the next two pieces. So technically you can have four pieces at a time. You also have a cool virtual closet that you can keep stocked with everything you eventually want to order so you never miss out. And if you really like something and want to keep it, you can opt to buy it at a massively discounted price. Friends, I'm obsessed. This is finally the answer to wearing all the clothes all the time with none of the waste. Oh, and of course, one of my major reservations was the cleaning compounds that they use on the clothes because yes, it is dry cleaning, which normally makes me nervous. And they don't say this on the website. So I reached out to them and I was like, hey, what's going on with the cleaning? What do you guys use? Because I can't promote this if it's just normal dry cleaning. And thankfully, they let me know that they do not use any detergents, fabric softeners, or chemicals that are harsh. Everything is professionally dry cleaned or laundered with detergents that are free from dyes and scents. It's all gentle and it uses low temperature cycles. So yes, we are good on that front as well. It is the coolest thing ever. And you can try it free for a month. Yes, completely free. Just go to MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com to sign up. Free clothes for a month. After that, their plans are super affordable. We're talking honestly, an entire month is less than the cost of typically what would be the cost of one dress. And I am not kidding. That's right. Unlimited clothes for less than the cost of one outfit. I'm just so thrilled to bring this resource to you guys. I can't wait to hear what you guys think. So again, get free unlimited clothes for a month at MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. That's MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com for all of the clothes, none of the waste. And definitely share your pictures and tag me on Instagram because I want to see all the fabulous things that you guys are wearing. That's MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. This deviates a little bit from the bright light and eating approach, but I've personally found with intermittent fasting to be like the lines that really work for me and that I think work for a lot of our listeners as far as, you know, having the times that you eat and don't eat. And honestly, we talked about it a lot. Like, I think the hardest part, once you make it part of your identity and once you're, you're doing it and, you know, the scientific benefits of fat adaption, things like that, but it really is just existing in society and <laughs> dealing with this like theme that we've talked about all throughout the um, episode of this idea that, you know, sticking to these rules and boundaries can be healthy. So I'm just really hoping for more of a reframe there for people. 
And Melanie, how do you fi- define intermittent fasting? Like if someone squinches their breakfast, lunch, and dinner up so that they have breakfast and they start eating at 9 a.m., they have lunch at noon, and they eat dinner at 4, and they're done eating at 4.30, and then they don't eat again until 9 a.m., would you call that intermittent fasting, or are you talking really more like 24 hours of fasting? Oh, no, yeah. I would definitely call that intermittent fasting because that'd be like, what, 10, 11, 12, 1, 2, 3, 4. That'd be like a seven and a half eight-ish hour eating window because there's a lot of different definitions and a lot of ways to do it. I typically look at it as either, you know, counting the actual hours that you're eating. And usually it's, you know, around the minimum, usually like a 16 hours fasting, eight hour eating window, sometimes a little bit longer or a shorter eating window. And then some people just do it like by a meal approach. So I just eat dinner every night, but I don't count the hours or anything like that. But I just have so much freedom. And it's something that I tried to experiment with, I've been doing it for so long and it was working so well, but I was like, maybe I need to be like (laughs) not eating this way. And I tried like different eating windows. It was what we were talking about earlier. Like I just lost control. I found the approach that really works for me. And I think for people who intermittent fasting resonates with, I think they can find the window that works for them. But I do think it's very personal for people. Well, this has been so amazing. I have so many other questions, but listeners will have to definitely get your books. Again, Brightline Eating. What's the cookbook title one called? The official Brightline Eating cookbook, Weight Loss Made Simple. Awesome. Put links that in the show notes. And then of course, Resume, the powerful reframe to end the crash and burn cycle of food addiction. I cannot thank you enough for your work. It is changing so many people's lives. I, oh, just one really last quick question. Cause you talk in resume about how, was it the catalyst for the book? Like when you had your own falling off of the wagon and then you publicly talked about it on social media, was that what led up to this book specifically? I became a psychology professor and I taught psychology and and neuroscience and brain and cognitive sciences at colleges and universities around the world. I ended up getting tenure as a psychology professor and ended up teaching by a fluke, really. There was someone, another professor who developed the course and then she upped and moved to Kansas when her mom got sick. And, and so this course was left needing a professor. And I just started at, at this college and they were like, you know, we need a professor to t- teach this course. And it was called the psychology of eating and body image. And so I got thrust into teaching this course and I was already doing my own. I'd already lost my weight. I was already, you know, not eating sugar, not eating flour. And I had done every project I could possibly do that had free choice, like in grad school studying, you know, things like bulimia, the science of caffeine addiction, you know, all these topics on food and addiction and all sorts of stuff. And so I started teaching a unit on the neuroscience of food addiction the second moment that I just want to talk about, which is as powerful for me as the moment when I just knew I had to get out of that crack house, I had a moment in my morning meditation. And this was January 26th of 2014. I had a moment in my morning meditation where I heard this booming mandate to write a book called Brightline Eating. And the meditation session kind of went on because I've been meditating for half an hour every morning for like almost 20 years. And in this morning meditation session, I could feel the world's need for this book that would explain what's going on in the brain when people can't get their food under control. They can't 
they can't solve the food problem. They can solve every other problem in their life, but the weight problem, the food problem, they can't solve it. And I, at that point, I knew what was going on in the brain and, and I could explain it. And so I started looking to write this book and that's where the Bright Line Eating movement came out of. Now I was, I was bright myself then, and I stayed bright for another year, year and a half. Bright Line Eating exploded so fast that, you know, at this time I was a tenured psychology professor. I was teaching four or five college courses every semester. I had three little children. I believe they were five, five, and two years old. And I was the assistant chair of the psychology department. I was now trying to write a book. And now this global movement like explodes. And suddenly I've got people saying, okay, I love your work, but how do I eat out? How do I feed my kids? How do I travel? How do I navigate restaurants? How do I know if I'm a food addict? Do you have a quiz I can take? Blah, 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 blah. And so I started helping them. And now suddenly I'm traveling for work and all these things are happening. Brightline Eating got so big so fast, I had to hand back tenure. And I now have the appointment at the University of Rochester, but I don't actually, I'm not active there much doing anything. I'm still doing Brightline Eating full-time. And I ended up losing my bright lines in 2015 at a baby shower, not on sugar or flour, just on quantities. It was like cheese and salami. It was like a platter of cheese and salami. And I just kind of kept going back, more cheese, more salami, more cheese, more salami, more. And at some point I noticed that I'd just eaten weight, you know, like this is enough, <laughs> enough now with the cheese and salami. And I, the, the, the food indulger part of me didn't care. It was just like, no, 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 I just want more. And so I just kept eating. And then just the cheese and salami, more cheese, more salami. And the just the sheer quantity of that was like just too much for me to call it a, a regular meal. And I remember sitting out in the parking lot after that baby shower going, okay, what do I do now? Because sticking to my bright lines of sugar, flour, meals, and quantities, and this was a quantities break, right? It's so part of my identity and what I do for a living. And every week I was putting out a video blog. I have a vlog that I've been doing every week for like seven or eight years now. And I had to rethink about kind of my worth. Like was my worth leading the Bright Line Eating movement tied to being perfect with my food? Was my value as an expert tied to, yeah, being able to do it? in an unbroken way for, for all these years. Well, what happened was I then was thrust into a, a period of time that lasted a little over four years where I periodically broke my bright lines and not just on quantities, but I started eating sugar and flour periodically as well. Periodically for four years as I was leading the Brightline Eating Movement and teaching people to not eat sugar and not eat flour and all that. And the cognitive dissonance in my head was pretty extreme. And I ended up just being honest about it really the whole time. I didn't pretend that I was being perfect with my food. I was honest, not just a little bit, but regularly about the fact that I was back to struggling with my food. And there were stretches when I, you know, my food was in, intact, you know, and, and bright and it was good, but it, the, the effort of all that was immense. And, and what happened was I was still going on video every week, so I couldn't gain weight right? I really couldn't gain weight. And I did manage to stay a size four all those years. There were definitely certain stretches of time where my clothes were a little tight, but I was able to get, you know, back on my food plan and bring it back down. And 
what I learned in that pressurized laboratory, I think if I, well, I don't think, I, I'm pretty sure I know that if I hadn't been leading Bright Line Eating and ha- if I didn't have the pressure to have to get on camera every week, I would have gained a lot of weight for sure. I would have had longer stretches where I would have just let my food go and I would have gained weight. I was not controlling my body size through bulimia or any other compensatory measures. I was just getting healthy again with my eating periodically and then falling off the wagon and getting back on. And so I had to get back on track really fast. Can you see it? Like I couldn't eat whatever, whenever for longer than a day or two or three, you know, and then I had to get back on track. Right. And so I had this, these artificial pressures, if you will, that forced me to get back on track. I mean, the reason I was I was eating addictively was because the the food addiction monster was alive and awake. It was like again the table of options, right? Like eating something was my new go-to option for when I was stressed and my life was mega stressful. I mean, my kids through this time were growing from, you know, suddenly I had two 10-year-olds and a 7-year-old. I guess the last time I ate addictively or ate sugar and flour was was probably around then. Now they're 14, 14 and 11, but you know, I, I put the food down again about about four years ago, right? And so it was that pressurized laboratory that kind of helped me to develop more compassion for myself, helped me to see that relapse doesn't have to be an emergency, even as we know that it's not what we want to do. It's not licensing it, but it's saying, even if you eat, you still need to be able to come home to yourself and care for yourself and get back on track as quickly as possible, right? And hold that you also don't want to do it because it doesn't serve you. So holding all of that at the same time is what I had to learn how to do. Talk about baptism by fire. That's incredible. It's perfect because the very last question that I ask every single episode of the show and it's because I realize more and more the importance of mindset, which, you know, is just encapsulated in this book about, you know, the mindset to have surrounding this whole thing that people struggle with. So thank you so much for what you're doing for people struggling with this. The question that I ask is, what is something that you're grateful for? Oh my gosh. I, I'm so grateful for so much. I can't even stand it. My heart bursts with gratitude. I am I'm grateful for my husband. I'm grateful for my sweet kids. I'm grateful for the way my youngest curls up with me every day and and we would play Nerdle, which is like these little math games. I'm grateful for Brightline Eating. I'm grateful for freedom from food obsession. I'm really, really grateful that eating something, you know, is not typically what comes up on that table of options when I'm stressed or life gets lifey. You know, I do not have a brain today that suggests that I go get something to eat over it. And I'm really grateful for that. I'm grateful for the Brightline Eating team. I have a bunch of a ama- couple dozen amazing employees who love the people that we serve so much. And I'm grateful for the just thousands upon thousands of people from every country on planet earth who are being served by Brightline Eating right now and the community that we have online together and how we just have this exquisite climate of an environment together of of love and support and encouragement and wisdom and grace and just we lean into each other so much and I'm so appreciative of that and I'm grateful for what I get to do for work you know just helping people with something that I've struggled with so terribly much in my life and just helping them break free. It's such a 
such a gift and such a privilege and an honor, truly. That is so incredible. Well, thank you so much. I just cannot iterate enough how profound your work is. I just am so appreciative that, I mean, you've literally experienced all of this and it's not just you telling your story, but you know, the science behind it and then the actionable steps that people can actually take. And then like you've mentioned and like listeners now know, you know, working with thousands of people and people, you know, changing their lives from your work. So thank you so much. And thank you for coming on the show and your fourth book. I'd love to bring you back in the future if that's of interest. I would love that, Melanie. It's just been delightful talking with you. Thank you so much. And I'll come back anytime. Awesome. Well, enjoy the rest of your day and I will talk to you later. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What When Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at melanieavalon.com. And always remember, you got this.